0: Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me in as much as I imitate Christ. Right? So when we see things in people, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are admirable, that are praiseworthy, what we're getting in that moment is a picture of what Jesus is like. So when Tim affirms me and is encouraging to me, I'm getting a picture of how Jesus looks at me. Um, when Sherry uh, o- opens up her home, of course, you've, I'm sure, been blessed by her hospitality, but even just her, her hospitality is just present in your, like, wherever she is. She's just that welcome, because that's what hospitality is, is welcome. You feel that from her. Well, when she does that, when you've received that, when she does that to me and my wife, that's a picture of what Jesus is like. A lover of the stranger. That's what the word "the hospitality comes from, is lover of the stranger. Pointing me to what Jesus is like. And so tie that into what the call on the Christian is, the call to uh, be a disciple, a follower, a learner of Jesus, and to make disciples. Well, what that must be is Something like, okay, if Jesus is master, teacher, rabbi, and a disciple is a learner, well, I need to be acting and living and speaking in such a way that I am bringing others to Jesus, bringing them as a pupil, a learner, to Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher. Right, so so even like the the Great Commission passage, Matthew twenty eight, go and make disciples. Well, that's always been sort of a a rub for me. That translation, make disciples, because it sounds like I can make someone a disciple. Well, raise your hand if you've ever been able to have faith in God on someone else's behalf. I don't see any hands, which is what I would expect. Um, You can't. I can't make anybody else do anything. I've been a parent long enough to know that. (laughs) I can't make them a disciple, but what I can do, by God's grace and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, is I can do my best to bring others, neighbors, coworkers, friends, but especially my children, as pupils to Jesus, and do whatever I can to get out of the way. A disciple is someone who has recognized their utter inability uh, to live in a way that pleases God. Has seen, I'm trying to think of the line from His Mercy is More, um, yeah, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked is, is from Revelation. But just that that I have nothing, I am nothing, I can do nothing, but Jesus is all and i need him and i'm going to follow him and do what i mean i've i've known his mercy i've known his love i'll do whatever whatever i can not because i have to but because jesus is so great i want to so that's discipleship being a disciple seeking to bring others as disciples to jesus to learn from him and in terms of passages we can look at i mean anywhere but especially in the gospels especially the synoptics Matthew Mark Luke the three that have all kinds of similarities there are these long sections in Matthew Mark and Luke that really zero in on discipleship and in Luke's gospel you know kind of from chapter 9 um into chapter 13 or you could argue all the way to like 19 but there's this extended section where you get section we get kind of the real a lot of those really familiar passages about discipleship and one of them includes Both uh, a familiar parable, but also a crucial, uh, fundamental aspect of the Christian life. And that's in Luke chapter 10. So if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. Or scroll to it. Um, Maybe you've got the whole Bible memorized and you just got it in your mind. That's great too. Look at it in the screen of your mind. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 25. Hear now God's word. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But, verse 29, But, wanting to justify himself, He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on His journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and Took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Verse 36 Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. The word of the Lord. Amen. Did you pray with me? Our merciful God and Heavenly Father, these words that we've just read are not mere human words, they are human words but they come under the full authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Help us now to hear them as that. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The idea I want us to zero in on for the next few minutes has already been stated. People of mercy who extend mercy to those who need mercy. That's the calling. That's what a disciple looks like. And actually you could sub in neighbors of mercy who extend mercy to those who to neighbors who need mercy. Or uh coworkers of mercy who extend mercy to other coworkers who need mercy. Or, as will be some of our focus, parents. Grandparents of mercy, who extend mercy to children who need mercy. We're going to see this in three parts of this passage, starting with the first part. If you're taking notes, a dangerous posture. A dangerous posture. In verse 25, we get the setting for the scene An expert in the law stood up to test him. This would be a guy who studied the details of the law of Moses, especially Genesis through Deuteronomy. But he was aware of centuries of translation, or of of interpretation and teaching, and the, the way the different rabbis would have talked about it. So he knows the ins and outs of the law. And actually, Luke, who's just an amazing writer, he has something very specific he's doing because. If you look back in verse 21, just before this, at at that time, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, the secrets of the kingdom. You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. And then the next story is an expert in the law. The wise and understanding. So Luke is inviting his readers, and therefore us, because of the power of God's word, inviting you this morning to not come as one of the wise and understanding, but to come as an infant, a child. Come as a child to learn. Because that's not what this teacher in the law does. He comes with a dangerous posture, a posture of pride, of self-righteousness, of, I know best, I'm unassailable. I am the all-knowing dad. <laughs> oh, man, that one hurts. Never had that attitude. And he asked a question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, eternal life, the, the phrase there isn't so much about uh, the, the length of, of time, you know, eternal in, in terms of time, but eternal in the sense of the life of the age to come the life of the kingdom that has been promised throughout the centuries to the people of God. So he's asking a question about, you know, how, how do I get that, that life? So Jesus, then in verse 26, doing what he, the master teacher, often does, and take notes, I'm going to comment on this again in a minute, but uh, he asks a question. He Look, verse 26, what is written in the law? Question number one. How do you read it? Question number two. Always, often, uh, interesting and useful to counter a question with a question, especially if there's some punch to the question coming at you, whether it's from a child or an unbelieving friend. A counter question can kind of cool things down sometimes. In this case, though, Jesus is doing something very specific. He wants to hear uh, the wise and learned expert in the law you know, share his wisdom, share his learning. You let me hear it out of your own mouth. You say it, and what does he say? Verse twenty-seven. He answered, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart." The the Shema. Uh, Jewish man would, I think, still uh, recite that twice a day. Uh, Shema refers to the first words in Deuteronomy six: Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc. So, very good answer. And then it's interesting, he also cites, again, from the law, Leviticus 19, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. These are two, you know, verses are in two different places in the law. Uh, Here, this teacher, this uh, expert in the law, brings them together into one. Which is interesting because in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is the one that gets the question to him, and he answers it. And he brings these two verses together. So isn't that interesting? So I think that shows us, possibly, that it wasn't, Jesus wasn't necessarily the first rabbi to bring together these two different ideas of love God and love neighbor. It seems to maybe have already been kind of out there in, the, in Jewish thinking. So the the, the wise and understanding, he knows the right answer. And in fact, what does Jesus say in verse 28? Look at it. You've answered correctly. Or you've answered rightly. The word translated correctly or rightly is the same word that we get the word orthodox from. So Jesus is basically saying that's an orthodox answer. That is a, that is sound answer. Doctrine. And then, of course, he gives very simple, not that difficult, easy command. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. The end. Right? By the way, Jesus' wording is almost exactly like the guy's first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do this and you will live. You know, you can almost sense a pregnant pause from from Jesus right there. It's like, didn't I just answer your question? But, of course, he he has very intentionally, as a loving, masterful teacher, he's trying. Jesus isn't after uh, gotcha moments. He's not trying to, you know, slam dunk on the guy. Jesus is a teacher. He's trying to teach. He's, he knows that this man has come with a dangerous posture, one of pride and self-righteousness, and I know best. And Jesus is lovingly, gently pushing back against that. That brings us then to part two. A dangerous journey. Part one, dangerous posture. Part two, a dangerous journey. When the teacher of the law asks his first question, it's actually not uh, really obvious that it's necessarily a hostile question. You know, maybe he, he, he's probably, m- my take on it, he's kind of in maybe the neutral to bordering on hostile position. It could be a genuine, I mean, I know it says he stood up to test him, but maybe he he really wants to learn. In his mind, he's putting Jesus to the test because he wants to, you know, hear the answer so he can learn. I don't know. Well, I know now what his motive is. Look at verse 29. What's his motive? That's right. Wanting to justify himself. He is an expert in the law. He's asked a question about the law. Jesus said, what does the law say? How do you read the law? He wants to be, this man now wants to be right in light of what the law says. But here's the thing about his question, which is, his question is, and who is my neighbor? If loving God, which he doesn't ask about the loving God part. I think, I think he's probably a lot like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Oh, I've done all that since I was a child. (laughs) Or, Jesus, I've done all that. Really, what should I do? So he centers on the neighbor question, and and we know his motive. He wants to justify himself. He's looking for boundaries. He, He really isn't asking, you know, who should I love? He's really asking, who do I not have to love? Who do I not have to love? And the reason I say that is because the, the question, uh, who is my neighbor, this was, this was something that the, um, the religious groups like the Pharisees and the Essenes, the Essenes aren't a group mentioned in the New Testament, but they were around then, um, they, they would kind of ask this question. And actually, it wasn't even with, the, I mean, the default would be my neighbor is just another Jew, another, another ethnic descendant of Abraham. Talk about narrowing it down, right? Um, but even some groups, like the Essenes in particular, they said there were some Jews that you don't have to love because they compromised themselves with the Gentiles. So he's, at, he's t- taking up that debate. That's an ongoing debate among the, the teachers, and he wants to know what Jesus is going to say. And again, by asking a question, he's trying to get it off of himself, like, put it on you. I'm putting you to the test. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. And I, I don't know. Things like this catch my attention and kind of make me smile. I like to just, as much as possible, fill in, in my mind what Jesus was like in live and in person. And it's just those couple little words at the beginning of verse 30. Jesus took up the question. He took up the question. It, I thought of this when I was thinking about it. This week, I've been really blessed to I get to stay at uh, home owned by my brother-in-law on the River, Shenandoah River. Um, Are there other rivers around here, I guess? If I say the river, I assume you know Shenandoah. Um, And it's fun for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that my three oldest boys lately have been really into fishing, which is funny because I don't even like to touch fish. (laughs) And somehow, these three are all into fishing. I mean, even yesterday, this guy... I was, I was holding one of their, their poles, and I'd cast it a couple of times, because once it's in your hand, it's just fun. Just cast it. And I was like, wait a minute, what if I catch one? What am I going to do? And I turned to my 11-year-old son and was like, hey, Luke, if I catch a fish, will you get it off the hook for me? <laughs> 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 it's not a joke. You can ask Luke later. I really did that. And I was serious. I wasn't going to touch him. Um, I'm belaboring this point to tell that funny story, but... Jesus, he, he's cast out there, and Jesus isn't baiting, baiting and switching. Jesus really wants to catch him. <laughs> he wants the, I think Jesus genuinely wants him as a disciple. So he, he casts, oh, and he gets a bite. And so he's taking him up. Taking him up. He took up the question, and he goes to tell a story. A story of a dangerous journey. Um, before telling this story, because I know we're familiar with this, I mean, for crying out loud, there are good Samaritan laws in the United States. Like, this is something that people who've probably never darkened the door of a church have heard of the good Samaritan. So, I know you know the story, but like any parable that Jesus tells, or any narrative we find in scripture, there's, there's kind of a tightrope that we have to walk in terms of how we understand it, and, and you know, um, I'm not too interested in trying to overly you know, stress walking that tightrope as much as I just want to say what, what I'm going to do as we go through it real quick is try to keep in mind what it sounded like to the first hearers, which is where you have to start always when you're reading your Bible. How did it sound to the first hearers? Um, because I know that when they first heard this, they weren't thinking, oh, oh, the, the inn, the in is the church. The end is the church. You know, you know the, people weren't, that, that's kind of a, one of those allegorizing interpretations. So we want to hear it that way. So let, let, let's do that. Okay. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. W- when Jesus says that phrase, Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody who heard it would kind of be like, ooh, ah, man, that's a tough one. It, it's, it's down, 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 down. The the original road there that would have been well-traveled was a lot of uh, switchbacks, and uh, it was very dangerous, a lot of uh, blind corners. It's treacherous, it's dangerous. So just a lot of instant assumptions when, when they hear a man walking down from Jerusalem, Jericho. It's a long way. He was not on a moped, you know. And he starts walking. They they hear that, and then they hear what they kind of expected. He fell into the hands of robbers. And they're like, oh yeah, happens all the time. Terrible. Just horrible. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. Uh, th- they stripped him. Th- look, you got to remember, first century, pretty much all the clothes you probably had were there on you. You know, it, if... If someone were to take, like, a pair of shorts and a T-shirt from one of my sons, like, just take it from them, it's fine because they each have about 800 other pairs of shorts and T-shirts. That is a recent count, I swear. (laughs) My wife is always doing laundry. Um, It's not a big deal, but if those are all the clothes you have, you're talking about immediate, you know, loss of, of significant wealth right there beat him up left him half dead took everything in fact this leaving him half dead we'll find out in a minute he's he's so bad off that he can't even walk he has to be put on an animal to be carried further that's how that's how desperate and destitute all hope is lost for this guy until verse 31 a priest, ah, you know, again, getting in their mindset, a priest, ah, a priest is coming. A priest happened to be going down that road. You may remember a priest is a descendant of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, but specifically through Aaron. So Aaron's descendants, Aaron was a descendant of Levi, there's a These of, Aaron, these are, these are the, the most special Levites. Um. But that's actually not what's so much important. What's really important, because it's what he shares in similarity with the Levite, and it's the, the familiarity with the law. A priest happened to be going down that road when he saw him, so he comes close enough to see a guy left for dead, lost, hopeless. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so people are listening. They hear this guy's gone on verse 32. In the same way a Levite. Oh. Maybe this guy'll do it. When he arrived at the place. So again, he's near to him. He cut This is a Levite, another someone else who knows the law, familiar with the law. He knows the He's orthodox. He knows the right answers. He saw him. And he passed by on the other side. Did you notice the wording is exactly the same? Did you see that? Uh, verse thirty one when he saw him, he passed by on the other side verse thirty two he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What Jesus is doing and telling the story the way he 's telling it is that there's a storytelling phenomenon that 's actually still, i think the case the, the um the rule of three. You know, you have one, and you have another, and there's, they're, they're similar, but then it's the third that's the contrast. The third is something different. I mean, probably could think of an example, three little pigs. We, so we still do this. You know, the first one, um, I think it's hay or straw. I should have looked this up. For, uh, <laughs> everybody knows the story. Um, the second one builds his house out of sticks. Oh, you know, it's gone. The third pig builds his house out of bricks. And man, that wolf didn't get in. And actually, they end up, like, killing the wolf. It's terrible. Well, but the point is, it's the third is the surprise. The first two is like, yay, oh, yay, oh. The third, yay, and it just stays yay. So Jesus is using the rule of three here, but it's on the third that he switches it up. Because what actually, what they might have been expecting is sort of... uh, if the first two are, are the, the clergy, you know, priest and Levite, then the, the, they might expect the third to have been a common everyday Israelite. So it becomes sort of an anti-clerical, like it's the, it's the everyday people who are the real heroes. That might have been what they're expecting, but that's not what they get. A Samaritan. And you can almost kind of hear the collective. <gasps> Everybody do it. <gasps> Thank you for participating. You didn't have to. Maybe you did. I don't know. It's hard for us to capture how hated the Samaritans were. There's not a great parallel. Um, you know, The, I mean, just think, think of Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Jonah was so against the people of Nineveh, he didn't even want to go. And, Lord, I know if you send me there to preach to them, they're going to repent because you're merciful. Ugh. You know, like... It's kind of this irrational... I mean, there's, there's history. You, know, you probably remember the Samaritans. They, they have mixed ancestry. They have some Israelite blood in them, but some Gentile blood because of what the Assyrians did when they conquered the northern kingdom and all this. But there's just this hatred. So as the people are listening, again, the first listeners, they're expecting a hero, but they get a Samaritan. What? And here's here's the kicker. He does the same thing almost. Look at what he does. Verse 33. When he saw, there it is, saw the man. He didn't walk by on the other side. The very, very first thing, he had compassion. This is one of my favorite words in the original language of the New Testament, in the Greek. Splachna. There's you know, not, not a good parallel in English for this. It's like splachma. It refers to if you're ta- using it literally, it refers to the internal organs, the viscera. Internal organs. It's very deep. It's down in here. Splagna. But when it's used, uh, that's the literal meaning. The figurative meaning is deep compassion. You know, you feel it in your bones. Like that's Jesus is trying to convey. That's how you know heartbroken. Oh my goodness, this man. The very first thing is the compassion, visceral compassion. In fact, what we'll see now is that deep compassion is the fountain of sacrificial action. Because if the actions of the priest and the Levite were to walk by, you know, be opposite, anti, I'm anti dying man on the road. This is all the opposite of that. This is, look, the first. Just I, I, I see at least nine distinct actions. See if you can see them with me. First, um, let me find the verse. <laughs> 34. He went over to him. He's near. He's close. Appropriate touch and care. He bandaged his wounds. You know, immediate first aid. He's bleeding. We've got to wrap this thing up. A tourniquet. I don't know. Uh, third, third, Pouring on olive oil, which would be soothing. And, and fourth, he pours on wine, a disinfectant. He's not making a vinaigrette. Um, he's soothing. Sorry, bad joke. But I'm a dad. I'm allowed. Um, it's written. Um, olive oil to soothe, wine to disinfect the wounds. Uh, where was I? That's the, 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 the fifth. Uh, he, fifth. He puts it on his own animal. He's been riding along comfortably, but he hops off. He puts him on his own animal. The sixth action, he takes him to an inn. Seventh, and this you know, took care of him. He cared for every one of his needs. You can almost picture him attentive. It's, it's late through the night. He's checking on him. Is he still breathing? Does he need you know to have his bandages changed throughout the night? He took, gets a comprehensive word. The eighth action, uh, it says he... he he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. So he provides his resources. He gives of his own resources. And not only that, the ninth one, he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Future needs. He's taking, he, he plans for the future needs. Nine distinct actions. Maybe you can break them out into more. In distinct opposition to the priest and Levi who went by on the opposite side. That leads to part three of this passage. The, the story has concluded. The parable concluded. And we come to a dangerous challenge. A dangerous challenge because for those who would take it up, it will not be easy. And yet, it will be worth it. The dangerous challenge comes in yet another question from Jesus. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved To be a neighbor. Now, notice how he asked that question. Because what was the question that the teacher of the law asked him right before the parable? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns that question on its head. Actually, you might say Jesus turns it right side up. You're asking the wrong question. The right question is Are you a neighbor? am I a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And notice, I think this is telling, the the commentators point this out, verse 37, his answer is, the one who showed mercy to him. He can't even say the Samaritan. But his answer is right. Jesus told him, go and do the same. The one who showed mercy Mercy. And then J- Jesus' dangerous challenge, go and do the same. Which, by the way, the word do, it's resurfaced. It was, back, it was his first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, go and do this, and you'll live. And then finally, go, go. and it's, it's an imperative, it has a continuative sense to it. Keep on doing. Keep on doing. Wherever you go, keep on doing the same. So where do we go from here? I want to finish our time this morning with some implications, generally speaking, for the Christian life, but also specifically maybe one layer down for making disciples, but then also even more particularly for for pointing your children to Jesus, your grandchildren, your neighbor's kids, <laughs> but, but making disciples of your children. So some implications. First implication, recognize the danger of your default position. Again, going back to the beginning of the story, the, the pride, uh, the arrogance. The, our, our default position is we kind of are out to justify ourselves. Or maybe that's just me, but I know that's the case for me. But It's dangerous. John Stott famously said, at every point in your Christian life, pride is your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. Recognize the danger of your default position. Second implication, realize that you are lost. Realize that you are lost. If you go into this story looking for yourself, you'll find yourself not in the Good Samaritan, primarily but in the guy left for dead, all hope is lost for him. That's you. That's me. A couple chapters later, we get the, the three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son. Lost, lost, lost. Realize that you are lost, left to yourself. If, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, you're just visiting with a friend or family member, that one might have hit you in the mouth kind of hard. You weren't expecting that. But just know that the, the Christians around you, we, that's how we see ourselves. Yeah. Left to ourselves, we're lost. Right. We're left for dead on the side of the road on our own. Third, third implication, realize then that your neighbors, coworkers, friends, children are lost too. Yeah. That's how you need to view them. Not lost and with no hope. I didn't say that. If you're a Christian and they're in your home, they've got hope. Praise God. (laughs) But their fundamental position, like yourself, is one of lostness. Fourth implication, and this one one is challenging. Recognize the danger of cold-heartedness. It is dangerous. You are not obeying the Lord, not living for the Lord. If, if your internal sense of feeling towards lost people is cold, if your inc- 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 uh, inclination is to see and walk by on the other side, that is cold. That is void of mercy. There's no mercy there in you. And so there will be no mercy from you. <laughs> And don't forget that the, the cold-hearted ones in this story actually had really good theology. They were orthodox. Orthodoxy doesn't necessarily lead to orthopraxy, right living. It doesn't necessarily. I think the link is probably the, the filled with compassion part, the, the, the change that's taking place on the inside of a person, which, which leads me then to the fifth receive okay there's been a lot of hard-hitting stuff it's time to receive receive the sacrificial love of the true good samaritan receive the sacrificial love of the true good samaritan look the good samaritan is not you it's not me it's jesus And here's the thing, we, as Christians, we understand that to be both biblically true, theologically true. We can all nod our heads that's true. But actually, surprise bonus, I think Luke, the gospel writer, is actually trying to tip his hat with something very specific. He said, it's the phrase in verse 34, nope, verse 33, he saw the man and he had compassion. That phrase has already been used once, only one other time in Luke before this, and it's in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus comes to the widow of Nain, who has just, she's a widow. She has no husband. Her only son has just died. She has no hope. And in Luke's phrase, it's the same words. It's the same words. Jesus saw her and was filled with compassion. And then he raised her son from the dead. (laughs) That's what Jesus does for you, my friend. And if you're not a Christian, he can and will do that for you if you will receive it. He will come to you in your lostness and all of those things. He'll come over to you directly. He will bandage your wounds. And Christian, this morning, this is true of you. Still, he will pour on oil and wine to soothe you and cleanse you of your sin and heal you He will put you on his own animal. He'll carry you along. He'll take you to an end to to protect you and and, and further care for you. And he promises more when I come back. When I come back. I'm not algalizing there, I promise. That's just Jesus. Receive him so that then you can, final implication, reflect the sacrificial love of the true good Samaritan. It's then and only then that you'll look anything like the good Samaritan. Yeah. When you've received Jesus and just out of your sense, the, the woman and great passage to have read today from earlier in Luke 7, the woman who, who's just been forgiven much by Jesus and so she thanks much, that's what you'll do. Lastly, and this will be quick, what might this look like as a parent? What does the love look like? Here, here are just some that as I went back through the passage and I tried to just press them in specifically to my day-to-day, my, my failures at, at trying to do this as a parent, my, the ways that I've learned. Because again, just because I have six kids, maybe you have more, I don't know. But it doesn't mean that I'm all that wiser. It just means that I've probably set up a pack-and-play more than a lot of you. I'm really good at it, okay? This is still hard to set up, though. Love. What, what, how to love your parent, your, your, as a parent, love your children like the Good Samaritan. Love, number one, as if you are the problem. Love as if you are the problem. If you focus on yourself and your own problems, you will be quick to ask your children for forgiveness when you need to. Parents, grandparents, if we're not asking children for forgiveness pretty often, then we're not being honest. <laughs> We need to recognize that I'm the one who's lost here. But then secondly, love knowing that you are part of the solution. So if you're your own problem, by God's grace, you can address your own need for growth and sanctification in your parenting. And then you'll view your children rightly. Thirdly, love without expecting anything in return. The, The good Samaritan, we don't hear him... We don't even know if he ever sees the guy again. We don't know if the guy even knows it was him that, that rescued him. He loves without any expectation of return. This just makes me think of that, that danger that parents run into all the time, which is this, the danger of thinking you can find a formula for, for parenting, that if I just do X, then my children will be Y. You'll never find it. Just quit now. Don't even try. Just love your children Expecting that if you do your best to love them and bring them to Jesus, Jesus can take it from there. Last couple of quick ones. Fourth, love with your words. Any parent here, would would any parent here, don't raise your hand, would any parent here just love to hear back a recording of themselves at the end of a day talking to your children? Oh, that would be fun. I'd love to hear how horrible I sound. (laughs) Love with your words. Think about, think about the words that you're speaking to your children. Talk to your, talk to your brothers and sisters who you are maybe in a small group with, or you meet with regularly. You know, what, do you hear my words, my kids? You know, open yourself up. Fifth, love with your hands and your feet. Look how, how practical and specific and and hands-on the the love of the Good Samaritan here, which is of course, friends, how Jesus is to us, particular and specific. Um. Serve your children willingly when they've asked you for the hundredth time to get them something or give them something or take them somewhere. You know, my impulse is to snap at them, to to not. No, you do it yourself. I'm not doing it. I got other things to do. No, we can serve them. I mean, be realistic. You know, yes, sometimes I have to say, you know what, buddy? I think you can go get that yourself. But the willingness to serve the my inclination is to serve myself. So I need that reminder. Sixth, love with your tone and your attitude. Our children may not remember the words we use, but they'll know how we speak to them. Do we, and this is what I'm trying to get at with this. Do we speak to them as someone who does not think that I'm lost and in need of a savior? You know, are we saying things like, "How could you do that? How how dare you do that?" I, uh, to my reputation, you know. How I've you I've told you that a thousand times. Well. Okay, John, but they're lost. They're lost. They need, they need help. So be compassionate to them the way Jesus would. Last two love with prayer. Love with prayer. I heard this great quote from the book, uh, Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's something to this effect. He says, Most of my, Almost all of my best parenting is done on my knees. Less lecturing, more praying. Last one, love with hope. Love with hope. On any given day, you're not nearly as bad of a parent as you think you are, nor are you nearly as good as a parent as you think you are. But if you are doing all you can by God's grace to bring your children to Jesus, there is hope. He can raise them from their deadness. He can save them from their lostness. And the angels in heaven will rejoice as you leave that to him and trust him in that. Let's pray. Lord, we are sinners in need of a Savior. Our children are sinners in need of a Savior. Every, everyone we meet is a sinner in need of a Savior. Thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. We bless you, O Lord, uh, through him and in his name, and pray for the grace to uh, follow in his steps. Christ. Amen.